Well, good morning, and we enter into this Thanksgiving week, and uh, of course you're expecting a Thanksgiving sermon perhaps, though we, I don't know if we've really done that that much. We can turn it down a tad in here, I think. Uh, but, um, but actually, there's a, there's a portion in this text, we're just taking it through the book of Matthew, as you remember, and if you've been with us, and uh, we come to this passage, chapter 10, and there is this interesting moment, isn't it, when the apostles are being sent out, and there's this incredible and drastic warning that to not welcome them, not, to not be grateful for them, or to listen to their teaching is to fall into the same condemnation as Sodom and Gomorrah. That should just startle you. What is the sin? What is so great of a sin that Jesus would, would say that? Well, you'll remember that we're in the context of, of this is a kind of part two where the first part was in chapter nine of the ending and the conclusion that Jesus made then was the problem with the world is that they are as sheep without a shepherd. That's the problem. As it happens, you'll remember that we preached that sermon the, the Sunday after the election, and we, we reflected on that a little bit. What, what were people doing? What were we voting for when we went to the election? And it was interesting in the sermon discussion the following week, I believe it was Patty told about a friend who, who was frustrated about the election and frustrated as I think a lot of people are that, that you know, it just doesn't seem like there's a clear, you know, leader for us. And, and, um, and the frustration we have felt over these months in our political context. And she made this comment I thought was interesting, Patty, that, you know, if only we just had a benevolent dictator. And I've thought about that. It's interesting, we hate dictators. We tend to not receive them well. And yet it's true, if, if there were a person who was all-powerful, a dictator, an all-powerful person, yet who was also benevolent at his or her core, would we welcome it? I've been reflecting on it. Is there any historicity to that? I was privileged to take a course by the renowned sociologist Peter Berger uh, while I was studying in Boston. And uh, in this course, he was looking at social change. As it, it was all a course on social change and, and the way that manifests itself in different forms. And he made the case, and he was, he's, if you know who I'm talking about, he's just preeminent in his field. And he made the case that um, probably the most successful transitions have always been by a benevolent dictator, where, where there was the kind of authority that could truly be welded for the sake of the common good. And of course, we all know the stories of dictators that go, might even begin benevolent, but turn out to be evil. And I won't go through some. I actually did a little research on them, but I don't take the time to do it now. But here's the point. We left that passage with Jesus having the power to do what no one else can do. It was very clearly worked out in the miracles that he did. And the summation of those miracles was meant to, it literally says, there was nothing he couldn't do. And there was no one he couldn't save. That was the gist of the whole passage. 
And then secondly, we saw that those miracles were meant to produce faith in him. Truly, as a benevolent dictator, I don't like that word, we would use the benevolent shepherd or the shepherd king. Now, that ended with this incredible statement about the harvest and how it was that we need to pray for God to send laborers, laborers being equivalent here to shepherds, into this harvest because the people were without shepherds. And that introduces then what we're going to look at today in the sending of the apostles. But here's the thing. We, in our very modern-esque way of interpreting Scripture, will do what scholars and hermeneuticians, if that's a word, have been saying we've been doing. We will subjectify our passage, and we'll import ourselves into it as if this passage is talking to you and me as individual Christians. And I think you're going to find that that would be a very erroneous way to interpret this passage. And, that, and moreover, that to miss the point of the passage has a consequence of great condemnation. So I hope I've got your attention, and let's open in prayer, and then we'll go through it. Father, we thank you for just your graciousness to give us a benevolent shepherd king in Jesus Christ. But Lord, we wonder in a world like ours today, where is he? How can we find him? Where does he speak? Where does he act? Is he left us? Has he left us in the ascension? Or is he here somehow, really and truly here? Lord, help us to see. Awaken us, perhaps, to see how you have taken great pains to be here in very real and concrete ways that we might trust that you are with us, really with us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, the thing I want you to do real quickly is I want just to point out to you in this text the uniqueness of this sending or this commissioning or this, you could describe, first ordination. There is a commissioning here, a charge with authoritative instructions. And I want you to see, first of all, that it's not given in, in an abstract and universal way. It's given to how many people? Twelve. Just twelve. That's important. Three references in the passage with the word the twelve. Verse one, verse two, verse five. This is not a commissioning that has anything to, well, it has something to do with you, but it's not you being commissioned to go out here. This is the 12, number one. Names are given, verse two through four. We are not the 12. <laughs> you know you're not the 12 because you're not included in the list. Nothing would be a graver misunderstanding of this passage, which goes out of its way to mark off these 12 as distinct individuals, they were not. They were our Lord's hand-picked shepherds for a specific task with a specific redemptive purpose within a specific 
redemptive period. I think I'm making my point, <laughs> right? Notice the charge and its uniqueness. What they were to do in verse 1b, verses 7 through 8, it says they summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to cure every disease and every sickness. He said, as you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Matthew 9, verse 35 gives you the list of things that Jesus had done that made everyone see that he is the benevolent shepherd king. And it's almost the exact same list. In effect, he's saying, I want you to go. And, I want, and I'm giving you power and authority to do what I've done, particularly in these supernatural healing ways. Now, I want you to compare this to other commissionings throughout the New Testament. There's a conspicuous silence regarding the working of miracles in similar ordination context in this, for instance, in the pastoral epistles. First Timothy 4 will say nothing about doing miracles of healing and curing. Nothing. Peter, in his chapter on ordination, will say nothing about it. Thessalonians will say nothing about it. All specific instructions, Acts chapter 20, will say nothing about it to the next generation of pastors. These pastors, or these shepherds, I should say, these 12, were given a unique and special power and authority. The purpose of these, we know, he says to us explicitly, was as a sign. It was to signify that the kingdom of God has come near. It's interesting because that's exactly what Christ proclaimed earlier in Matthew. When he went about preaching the gospel, and he says, for the kingdom of God has come near. It's, it's come present. They were to go out and say and repeat that message and repeat his miracles. Extending the works of Christ such that the proclamation of Christ concerning the coming of the kingdom of God then would become more widely spread. We know that there's signs. John makes the case very clear. He says, these things are written about so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, through believing you may have life in his name. And then notice as well where this is going to go. These unique apostles are uniquely charged with a unique thing to do, which is to signify the coming of the kingdom of God and... And to signify their unique authority, their unique authority, like no other persons will ever have again, not in the same way as they did. And their unique authority means that if you reject their words, reject their ministries, you have rejected Christ. That's the point. To reject the apostles was to put yourself into hell. That's why he gave the analogy of Sodom and Gomorrah. Probably the most vivid depiction of judgment in the Old Testament, which is often referred to in the New Testament as a metaphor, if you will, for hell itself. I mean, it don't get worse than this to reject these 12 apostles. 
Now, the story will go on. Of course, when you go through Acts, isn't it interesting that the church came together and they received the apostles and it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was the church that was formed on the basis of their teachings that Acts chapter 2 will tell the story throughout. We know this was intended because, of course, in Matthew 16, just a few chapters later from our chapter, Christ is going to bring this to full circle when he says to them, upon this rock, I will build my church. What is that rock? That apostolic confession of Peter, Peter representing the apostles in this context, wherein the gates of hell will not prevail, wherein there would be this amazing and supernatural binding on earth what is bound in heaven, loosing in earth what is loosed in heaven. That's language that's used in, in, in the kind of language of putting someone under another's authority and protection. It's really interesting stuff here. Ephesians 2 reflects on this. So then you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you were citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 2 will say the same thing, so that your faith may rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. This is what Paul says, as an apostle, added later, as you know, with his encounter of the resurrected Christ, he called him the least or the, uh, of the apostles, which is the last to be appointed. And yet, the interesting thing, again, is why are these 12 men so important? It's to give assurance based on the very signs and wonders that they performed in their life, handpicked by Christ, that the world would know, even when Christ is ascended into heaven, that his authority, his benevolence remains. It's still here. It's such an important series. Now, this is going to be why throughout the New Testament, you're going to have all kinds of, of arguments about who the apostles are, who should we follow, etc. But the point being that it really mattered to the first century. Because if, if they were reading this gospel, they knew, okay, they knew that so goes my relationship to an apostle, his teachings, his, his manners of life in terms of, of what was prescribed in terms of our behaviors, that those things were the things of the divine shepherd king. And so the debate would go, how do we... Who is an apostle? Paul, and sometimes we'll read that, and I know I was tempted to do it, uh, when I would hear Paul defending himself as an apostle or Peter defending himself as an apostle over against others. And I'm thinking, God, that kind of seems self-fulfilling you know, self or self-promoting. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm against self-promotion, aren't you? I'm against it. Well, see, that's not what they were doing. They were making it clear, lest the people be judged that they were the true apostles, given these signs and wonders, precisely that they might therefore proclaim what Christ would proclaim. So notice then what they were to do, the signs and the wonders. Where were they to do it? It's interesting here in verse 5, 6. 
And this phase, they were to go nowhere among the Gentiles, the ethnos, the nations, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's interesting how in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it gives this first Jerusalem, Judea, then Samaria, etc. In other words, there's a sense in which we know that by the end of Matthew, he's going to say, now go, therefore, to all the what? Nations. But here, it's clearly wanting to, to, to be described that whatever Christ is building now, now listen to this, whatever he's building, this new community, this new assembly, it is to replace, or I should better say, fulfill what the true Israel assembly should have been. For all of you who want to know how to relate the Old Testament and the New Testament, you just got a mouthful. The church is the spiritual, true, redemptive assembly Israel of God. That's what's saying here. And see, this is setting this up. You're going to read all about this stuff when you go into the end of the epistle, the epistles. And even in the Acts, you're going to read all about this. I just don't, I'm not going to bore you by taking you there. I'll, I'll allude to it here and there. But what's happening here is a subtle transfer in your mind. Jesus Christ is my benevolent dictator, or better, shepherd king. Jesus Christ has ascended into heavens. But Jesus Christ has not left me, as he promised in the end of Matthew even, and lo, I'm with you until the end of the age. Well, how does he make good that promise? He does it by sending out the apostles as his authoritative, as if to reject him is to reject Jesus Christ himself kind of an identity, wherein he is now making it clear that the Israel of God, the true remnant Israel of God, is the people that are organized, that are consolidated together by virtue of or built upon the apostolic foundation, their teachings as on behalf of Christ. This is so important because if you are looking for that benevolent shepherd king, this is telling you in narratival form what will be stated later in very declarative form that the church of Jesus Christ, insofar as it is built upon the foundation of the apostles, is Jesus Christ in the midst of us. <laughs> That's a pretty radical statement, isn't it? In a day like this. But that's what's happening here. This is the historicity, the historicity of that dogma, if you will. Always our doctrines are rooted in history. History of God acting in, in, in a deed manner like in here that results in a word interpretation that's going to happen throughout the New Testament. And so I want you to think about um, what's happening here. In this post-ascension, how does now, what's going to change here? How do we understand post-ascension ordination services? This is pre-ascension, happening before Christ goes up into the heavens, sending out the apostles, doing the signs and wonders, authorizing them uh, with, the, with, the very, with the very promise of certain curse if they don't. Well, there's some things in common here. 
let me show you a few things. First, the context for sending, which is the same today. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. Verse 9, chapter, 30, chapter 9, 36, they remember they're sheep without shepherds. And there's this incredible issue then where for, for Jesus, the purpose, the purpose of this radical transition in the kingdom of God, wherein... Rather than being bottlenecked on Christ at one place and at one time in the first century, it's now going to expand into that the 12 now that can go out. Now we got 12 presences of Christ, if you will, quote unquote, which are going to build this church that's going to go multinational. And there again, Christ is present. And it's all driven by this compassion for a people who are desperate, desperate for a shepherd king. In other words, therefore, like then, so today, we must allow desperate conditions not to serve as a reason to hide ourselves from the world, but as reason to send people into the world and to plant churches into the world. But that's how this would get translated, you see. I know I've skipped some things with just the time allows, but what you're going to find is in, we call it apostolic succession. Now, there's a big debate in the Reformation about apostolic succession. Is it a succession of men, persons, personalities? We, the, the reform side, if you will, said no. The Catholic side said yes. It resorts in a certain form of government. The episcopy, we call it, form, or hierarchical form. Whereas the reformers saw in Scripture what I think is obviously right, or I would be standing in this pulpit, which is, yes, there is, though, but here's the problem. Protestants will come away from that, and many will say, oh, oh, we don't believe in apostolic succession. There could be nothing possibly further from the truth. (laughs) We do believe in apostolic succession, but it's a succession of the apostolic foundation as it's over and over and over again reorganized, if you will, in every ordination of the calling of every pastor shepherd in the context wherein his office, not his person, his office is in succession to the apostolic office that is in succession to the Christ messianic office. And so you have this mediated succession of office, an office that is carefully in Scripture, very carefully in Scripture, um, instituted with specific instructions, specific character traits that ought to be becoming of that office, specific duties as to what that office should do and not do. I mean, it's it's amazing how we could read your Bible. I, I read my Bible for close to, you know, 15 years as a, a good born-again Christian. And I'm telling you, I don't think I saw one ounce of anything I've just said to you in the scripture. I don't know. If you feel that way, you're not alone. This stuff just looks crazy to me, you know, if I were then. That's why I'm taking the time. But I can tell you, I've said nothing here that's any different from almost every confession of faith I know. 
I mean, even the Apostles' Creed, when it says, I believe in the what? Apostolic church. Think about that. Believe? I mean, come on. Recognize? That would have been nice, you know. Give, give, give some respect to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Believe in it? That is the highest level of relation to something, to believe in it. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe in the church. Find me a historic confession. Thousands of years. Find me one that up until recently would have ignored that truth. We are in desperate times. No, in some ways, similar to Christ's desperate times. Times when people, for all kinds of reasons, have rejected, of course, the church. There, there's a remaking of the Christian religion so that it doesn't require any kind of, of authoritative community in my life. It's not hip. I mean, we live in desperate times. I mean, it's not so different from that first century when there was disillusionment about Israel, disillusionment about priests and prophets and, and the way in which, yes, much of that disillusionment, which we read about two weeks ago in Ezekiel and in other passages was due to the corruptness of the temple priest and, their, and that pastoral guild. And yeah, I hear those stories today. What happened in the Old Testament that led to the, to the cleansing of the temple by Jesus Christ? Well, it's a history of the church of the Old Testament, the Israel church, which left the Mosaic foundation for what they were to be doing. They became increasingly worldly, increasingly self-serving, increasingly political. And the Assyrian and the Babylonian and the Egyptian sorts of, of, of compromises that were made over history. And subtly, you could meet a Jew on the street and they would say something like, oh yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I believe in the church, but eh, it's not that important to me or I'm... Uh, it's, that's just not my thing. Why? Because, yeah, for generations they had left the ap what we could call the Mosaic Foundation, the, all the, the carefully choreographed, carefully organized rules about what a priest was to do and not do, what a pastor was to do and not do. When you leave all that and we just all think, well, we're, and it happens especially in the dumbs, in the Israel dumbs or the Christian dumbs. Why? Because it's all taken for granted. Oh, we all know. Yeah. Oh, we all know. Oh, yeah, we all know. No, we don't. You see? Because we haven't been teaching it every generation. We are in a beautiful, horrible time. <laughs> it's beautiful because really we have an opportunity to go right into a vacuum and rediscover the church as in succession to the apostles because it's been lost, most historians say, for at least three generations, where the actual understanding of how to put together the argument for it from Scripture has been lost, because we've just been doing it and doing it and doing it, and when there's no persecution against it, when, it's, when there's actually social benefits to doing it, 
which is what dumb does to, to, the, to religion. It, it becomes a kind of, a, a, there's a role of that religion in that society which the society acknowledges is good and therefore, you know, I don't have to fight for it. Anyway, much more could be said. The first thing you see in similarity here is the desperateness. We have returned to the first century in this 21st century world. Many are making the, the comparison. We are a people desperate without a shepherd. And yet the response of Christ is compassion. He had compassion. He says, moved with compassion. There's our motive. The motive of the church and the motive of those who would fill an office of shepherd, under shepherd, has to be compassion, not self-interest. Let me read this passage in 1 Thessalonians, and I read it because I know that you should hold me accountable to it and every pastor here, as well as we should remember that, that if you're rejecting the church, I'm just betting you're not rejecting the church as God sees it. So I'm really speaking to you as well if you're out there. Up there, down there, down there. If you're thinking, I'm really uncomfortable with church stuff, just tell me, would you reject a benevolent shepherd church on behalf of Christ? Here's the way it would look. First Thessalonians 2, for our appeal does not spring from deceit or implore motives or trickery, but, we, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak. I mean, you can just stop right there. We're going to speak nothing save Christ, is what he just said. We're going to come to you, and it's not going to be about my opinions. It's not going to be about my hobby horses. It's not going to be about my political views. It's not going to be about my well-being. It's going to be, I'm going to speak nothing save Christ. Entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak that message. And he goes on. And we will speak not to please humans, so whether you like it or whether you don't like it, it's not going to change what I'm going to say, but to please God who tests our hearts. That is something that every pastor should hear and you, a congregation, should hear. There is a judgment awaiting everyone who fills the office of shepherd. It's not to confuse with justification. And he goes on. And here's what Paul says, for as you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery. Stop there. You know the talking head, the, you know, the spin crafter, someone that could speak in order for you to like me, speak in order for you to give me populist power and privilege. Paul says nothing of that. We didn't come with words of flattery nor with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from humans, whether from you or from any others, but we were gentle among you, like nursing, tenderly caring for their own children, because you have become very dear to us. We worked night and day. We dealt with each of you as a father, his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you lead a life worthy of the Lord who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Do you hear the spirit of that? It's interesting, isn't it, how there, it, it, it's this, it, there's an incredible power that I hear in this passage from Paul. This power of confidence, not in himself, but in Jesus Christ and his words. But why? 
because he had that apostolic foundation. As long as he stuck to it, as long as he's within the boundaries of that apostolic foundation, he had confidence. And the only thing that mattered at the end of every sermon and the men of every day was that Jesus would in the balcony of his life would be standing up and saying, well done, well done. That's it. If no one else stood, that's what Paul's looking for. And so it's, it's a succession of apostolic nature that then the succession must include not only the sense of desperateness and the neediness of the world for shepherds that represent Jesus Christ, which is the very basis of anyone that would be called to it, but secondly, it brings the benevolence with it. It's a benevolent calling. Third, we pray for it. It's interesting here how he makes this point that we're to pray for the labors, labors being synonymous here. If you look back at that, I read it already uh, for the shepherds. We pray for it. Why? Because only God can raise it up. It's still miraculous that anyone is given a ministry heart. You see, it's, it's God that sends these this church to us. Not, it's not a human idea. It's not a human adventure. Notice also verse 38, the dependence in ministry. Therefore, ask the Lord of his harvest to send out those laborers. Why? Because the Lord is the Lord of the harvest. We are totally dependent on him. I mean, think about it. Are you praying? Are you really praying? And I mean this, and I, might mean, and I can say it, I hope God knows, not for Preston. Are you praying for your pastors? Are you praying for your elders? Are you praying for your church? We are absolutely powerless without God, who is the Lord. I love that. That takes the weight right off. I'm not the Lord of the harvest. Thank God. I'm responsible as you are responsible to the calling that God gives us to do it faithfully. I'm not responsible for you believing it. Isn't that amazing? Only God is. Only God can do that. If you're afraid of aspiring to the office of overseer, because I'm going to end with that later on, that, that some of you there in this room, in that room downstairs and out there in Zoom land, I'm going to hopefully get you to really think about it. If, why aren't you aspiring to this office if you have those gifts? The world is desperate. We need shepherd leaders. But I'm going to tell you why you won't. Because I know why I struggled with it. I didn't want that responsibility. <laughs> I didn't want to get myself into that mess. You know, it's just, it's a lot of messy stuff. And I don't know if I wanted to do that. But this passage gives me a great comfort. This idea being that the Lord is the Lord of the harvest. I don't take responsibility for your faith. God does. I take responsibility to faithfully execute the apostolic foundation. That's what I take. Why? Well, we just saw. 
Because these 12 were handpicked by Jesus Christ himself to give me that foundation, to give me the teaching, to give me the instructions about how we worship, about what we do and what we say, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ministry in relation to the world, then notice. It's not to have, it's, and this is where I'm going to get to this very interesting passage that will kind of close the exegetical section with it. For here we have this strange thing, take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey or tunics or sandals or staff for laborers deserve their food. Now, that, that just totally surprises you, doesn't it? If you're really listening. Hold it. Take nothing. Don't have any money. Don't take anything. Don't do anything. Da, 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 da. And I'm about to say because, you know, you don't deserve to eat. <laughs> you don't deserve to live. You know, that's kind of what you're thinking here. And you go, oh, no, no, no. Do it because I want them to do it. I want wherever you go to do it. And because it's not going to be access. It's going to be what you need and nothing more. You're not to be hoarding things. That's the idea. Not for sordid gain. It's interesting, isn't it? The implication that labors would be given their, their nourishment. They are not to be reimbursed because they're performing miracles, though. Thus, their reimbursement is determined by their necessities of life, not by the mighty power which God has been pleased to display through them. That's what's happening here with the apostles, and that should succeed as well. That should go down the line as well. That's the foundation that the modern church should do. This is not a get-rich scheme, but it is a scheme that requires the response of the people who are desperate for a shepherd. He says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. It's interesting how they did that. If you read the work, book of Acts, they'd go into a town like Acts 13, 51, and they shook the dust off their feet. That was, by the way, a protest. That was, a, that was just a, a common metaphor as if to, to clean myself of that, of that area, if you will. And that's really amazing to me, you know, that, I mean, I've thought through this some, but, you know, when, how do, what does that look like today in, in the church of Jesus Christ? What would it look like for the church of Jesus Christ to shake off its feet? We're supposed to go to the world. We're supposed to go after, belief, you know, people who are not Christians. We're supposed to love them with compassion Remember, this isn't you go to the world with harshness and bitterness and condemnation. Jesus went into the world. What did he do? Remember, we've covered this in previous sermons in Matthew, where everybody was upset because he's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, the wealthy sinners. And he says, I didn't come to save people who are self-righteous. I came to save the, the, right, the, the, the sinners, right? So don't misunderstand me here. There's a kind of rejection that I think is given to the church that might be justified if you're someone who's been hurt by harshness and, and judgmentalness and condemnationness and all of that kind of stuff. I, don't wanna, I wanna be honest about that. The church has some really bad record, sadly. You know, it has sometimes gone astray. But see, we don't reject or receive something as Christians based on the circumstances though it might choose a church versus that church. But we want to remember that what we believe is what God sees. And then we want to go to a church and help it be what God sees it to be. 
That's the difference. No, there's not a perfect church. But there is a perfect church in God's mind. And we would know what that looks like by the apostolic teaching. That's the point of this whole sermon. And so you think about this Sodom and Gomorrah. And this brings me to my conclusion. It seems to me that, one, this could be a good day to ask yourself, you know, am I really grateful? Do I welcome the church in my life? What would that look like? Well, it would look like, and I'm just, I know, you could read this in opportunistic ways. I know because I'm, I'm stuck, man. I'm up here and I'm speaking for the church. But I hope and pray God can give you the, the capacity to just believe for a minute, could this be what God would say? Because what I hear him saying is if you reject these apostles, and by consequence what they were given authority to build, the church of Jesus Christ, then you've rejected him. And so at the first point, we want to, if you've been hurt by the church or if you've heard all the bad rumors about the church and all of that, try to go back to that idyllic church that God sees and say, I need to be grateful for that and I need that to be in my life. During this age of COVID, I think people have really lost connection with churches. I've talked with many. You know, their church is not worshiping this way or that way or this way. So they start going off and, you know, there's a lot of drifting going around and that's really scary. Because, you see, until it's a concrete church, there is no church in your life. And if there is no church in your life as a Christian, then you are outside of that power of benevolence for you. A power that will correct you, yes. That will hold you accountable in ways to help you obey. But a power that will save you. And to reject it, is to deny your salvation. That's the point of this passage. And so I beg you, dream again. Dream again about the church. Say to yourself, instead of rejecting it, I want to go and I want to pray for this church. I'm going to find the church, the closest approximation to the ideal church that I can find in a given city. And then I'm going to join it. I'm going to serve it. I'm going to help it be successful. I'm going to get in there where it's messy. I'm going to, yes, even aspire to be an under shepherd in that church, if God would will. Because the times are desperate. Many, 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 many are without a church. Even people who call themselves Christians. What I mean is a real, concrete, flesh-on-flesh, life-on-life encounter with Jesus Christ mediated through the church of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to, to think about the testimony that you would give to the world about the church. To help the world believe again in the apostolic church. So that their faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Because that's where that, human, that divine wisdom and power is going to be found. You know, here's the way that Paul said it. He's looking now out to his first protege under shepherd, Timothy, not an apostle. And here's the succession that I was talking about. 
He says to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. That is an incredible statement right there, but just try to imagine how deep the pattern, that is this interconnected system of, 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 of teaching about both you know, uh, salvation, the church, everything. Follow the pattern of sound words that I've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and guard that good deposit that's entrusted to you. And then he later says, and then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ and what you have heard from me and the presence of many witnesses and trust to other faithful people who will be able to teach other faithful people too. That's apostolic succession right there. And so I want to leave you with the commission to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send shepherds. We need more shepherds in this church. But more importantly, this church needs to be the personification of Jesus Christ. Pray for us to be that in our city. Pray. And consider, when you're asked to help, do you really believe in the church? You should. And so help. And it's a warning to those who do serve in the church regarding your proper motivation for ministry, that is compassion, and love versus personal gain and stature. This isn't a profession. It's a vocation, if you will. And finally, let's just be thankful. This Thanksgiving week, maybe, just maybe, around the dinner table with all one of you or two of you this year, whatever it's going to be, we can say, God, thank you for my church. And you're not thanking them for Preston. You're not thanking them for Rob or for, you know, Alan. That's not what you're thanking them for, though you can add that, I guess. But no, you're thanking them for the church of Jesus Christ and how it does bring salvation into the world in your life. Let's pray.